So I'm Jordan. Uh, I'm the college pastor here. And uh, if, if you got your Bibles, flip open to Acts 6. We're going to jump back into Acts. And this is where we're going today. We're covering a, covering a lot of ground. We're going the second half of Acts 6 all the way into Acts 8. And, and here's why we're covering so much ground is that's all about um, one story about Stephen, who was actually the, the first martyr of the Christian church. And the reason it's so long is because he gives a super long speech in Acts 7. And uh, when I was reading this, it actually make, made me think of this. So I, uh, I once heard a joke that deeply frustrated me. And it was by a person in this room, actually. I'm not going to call you out, but you know who you are, and I might subtly look at you in this crowd. Um, and, and here's why the joke frustrated me. It wasn't because it was inappropriate, but, but this is how the joke started. Is he just started telling this random story that sounded like a buildup to the joke, and then the punchline never came. And I sat there patiently waiting with a group of people, and we waited, and then we waited. And then 11 minutes later, he was still telling the story, and so I stopped him and found out that that was the joke. There's no punchline. He literally just made stuff up until someone stopped him and then laughed. And it was the worst. <laughs> like, it was, I, I like am never getting those 11 minutes of my life back. And, okay, and I'm not going to lie to you, when I read chapter 7 in particular, I, I felt like that a little bit, okay? Because this is what happens is Stephen is accused of some things and he's like, here, let me respond to those accusations. And then he goes on this like rant about the history of Israel and I got done reading it and I'm like, I have no idea what that had to do with anything, like genuinely. And, but here's the thing, I, like so many places in the Bible, when you encounter something that is confusing or hard or maybe mysterious, if you keep digging, you can find gold. That, that God, he's not sort of easily definable. He's mysterious and he wants us to kind of lean in and try and figure out what he's doing in the world and why he said the things that he said. And I think today is an example of that. And I've had fun actually kind of overcoming my initial stereotype of chapter seven in particular and trying to find what God would have to say for us, okay? And so here's the deal. I'm gonna, I'm gonna start out by just trying to explain what Stephen's speech was about. And, and so I'm, I'm just going to try and give an overview of what he said, and then after that, we'll get to the implications, all right? Which is a little bit dangerous when you're preaching a sermon because we have the attention span of squirrels, which I'm assuming have low attention spans. But, um, but I want you to stick with me because I think this is like how we can gain some clarity on this text, okay? So I'm going to explain it, and then I want to unpack some of the implications. So Acts chapter 6, 8 through 15. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. The Holy Spirit was speaking through him, and they couldn't deny what he was saying. But then look at what they did. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came up to him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. 
And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like that, was like the face of an angel. So Stephen is preaching about Jesus and he's, he's working this, these miraculous signs and they don't like it and so they argue with him, but they can't defeat him. But instead of repenting and believing, because people sometimes can just be the worst, what do they do? They falsely accuse him. And they drag him before this council and they're going to bring these accusations against him. And here are the two main accusations that they bring against him. They say, one, he's rejected the temple and two, he's rejected the law which are really significant accusations, especially in this time. Because the temple represents the presence of God, what it means to be with God and to live in his presence. And the law represents what it means to live for God, how to actually behave in this world as believers. And they're saying that Stephen has gotten both of those things wrong. But Stephen's going to do something interesting. He's actually going to flip it back on his accusers. And he's going to say, no, you guys are the ones who have missed the presence of God. You guys are the ones who have missed how to follow him. You've missed the temple. You've missed the law. And I think that those accusations kind of form the structure of his speech and why he's giving it. Okay, so if you look at, at chapter 7, we're not going to be able to read that whole thing, but you can read it another time. But let me give you just the, the flyover of what Stephen is saying. Stephen launches into this, this in-depth history of Israel, which is pretty impressive, right? Because it's, it's off the cuff. And so he's just doing it from memory. And so clearly he's a guy that studied the scriptures. And, and the, the history of Israel focuses in on three kind of famous patriarchs from the faith. There's some other ones in there, but the, the focus is on these three. So the first one is Abraham, who Abraham is, is where this whole thing got started, is God shows up to this guy, Abraham, and he starts making promises. And he says, hey, I want you to, to be my people, and I'm going to give you descendants, and, and I'm going to be with them forever, and I'm going to bring them into this promised land, and I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my people. And then there's Joseph, who is the cocky, kind of annoying younger brother, and his older brothers overreact and they sell him into slavery. Kind of extreme, but that's what they do. They sell him into slavery in Egypt. But then in this dramatic reversal, Joseph goes from being a slave in Egypt to being the second most powerful person in Egypt and actually saves the world from a famine. So that's Joseph. And then the third he talks about is Moses, which a lot of you know the story of Moses, but he was an Israelite that was raised as an Egyptian, and then he ends up being sort of the deliverer of Israel, and he gets the people out of slavery in Israel and kind of brings them out into the wilderness and then eventually to the promised land. And so he, he throws out this overview of the history of Israel, and I think this is the, the reason that Stephen is doing this, is he's actually showing commonality in the stories of all of these people to say that you guys, you know, you religious leaders, you're focused way too much on this temple thing. Yeah, yeah, the temple's important, but you can't confine the presence of God to the temple. And so this is what he's saying is that all of these sort of famous people throughout history, they all had dramatic encounters with the presence of God outside of the temple. So Abraham, hundreds of years before the temple even existed, God shows up to him and starts making promises. Joseph, God goes with him into Egypt and, and brings him these dreams and these visions. Moses goes out into the wilderness and sees God in a burning bush. And so he's saying, you don't need the temple to encounter God because God is everywhere. And so the summary of his argument is Acts 7, 48 through 50. So let me read this to you. 
Take a, take a look at it if you've got your Bibles. It's so good. Yet the Most High God does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet said. Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all of these things? So, so this is what God is saying. You're going to build me a house? That's cute. I made everything. Like I put my feet up on the stars when I'm tired. Well, he doesn't get tired. That's not true. But he, he, his resting place is the heavens themselves. You want to try and contain me? And so God's saying, you can't contain my presence into a little building. I'm everywhere. I infuse everything with my presence and it's all for me and it's all created by me. But this is what the religious leaders were trying to do. They were trying to reduce him into something sort of understandable, something containable. And they were trying to put him inside of this building and they were, their thinking was, and yeah, the building was important, but their thinking was, if we can just have this building and then if we follow the right religious practices, then we'll be okay with God. In other words, they were trying to come to God on their terms. They were trying to kind of quantify him and make him approachable by their own terms. And they were saying, if we can just do these religious things in the temple, then we can live however we want outside of that. There's our God stuff over here. He's kind of there. And then there's the rest of our life over here. And God's saying, you can't contain me. I'm not tame. Okay, so I was, I was watching some football last week, right? Did any of you watch the, the Texas-Georgia game? I... I, I should have made that more clear if you had to raise your hand or not. You didn't have to. Um, but if you were watching this game, I saw one of my favorite moments of live TV that I have ever witnessed, okay? And I was, I was just going to describe this to you, but it didn't do it justice. And so I'm about to show you a video of this moment in a second. Don't play it yet. Uh, so here's the deal. These two teams have live mascots, animals as their mascots, which just seems like a bad idea in and of itself, right? You've got the Georgia Bulldogs, so they have a bulldog as their mascot. And then <laughs> Texas is the Longhorn, so they literally have a Longhorn that they bring out onto the field, which somebody should have been like, oh, that seems like a bad idea. And then some genius somewhere is like, hey, they should meet. That'd be fun. Okay, so I'm about to show you this, and Drew said I can get away with this because I'm the college pastor, all right? So here we go. This is the video of what happened. Like people's handles. Ladies and gentlemen, this is like a man walking on the moon. Never before. Oh, 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 Bebo. <laughs> oh. Can live television get better than that? No. Maybe that was not the best idea, but we don't care. <laughs> Can we get a replay on that? Can we get a replay? Oh. That's targeting. That targeting? I've seen a lot of things. It was worth it. That's but that it was worth it. Is was that awesome. Wow. Yeah, let's not do this. <laughs> I've watched that like 15 times, and I just stink and love it so much. Okay, did you notice the little gates that they put around that giant cow? Like, like who thought that these little like three-foot gates, they're not even connected? Like, why did they think that that could keep a longhorn inside of it, okay? So, so here's the deal. These guys thought that a couple guys in cowboy hats and a few little gates could contain a longhorn, right? Okay, even more dumb is some religious people thinking that you can contain God with some rules and a little building. Like, 
Okay, let's bring this home to you. Where, where are you trying to contain God in your life? Okay, so are you like them where it's like, hey, I've got this God section of my life where I, I go to church, maybe I, I spend a little bit of time with him in the morning, maybe I do a small group thing, and then I've got all of the rest of this over here that I live sort of outside of him. Okay, when you're trying that, I want you to picture that longhorn. Like God is going to blow up that little pen that you put him in, and he's saying, no, 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 all of this is mine. Where are you trying to say, you know what, God, you can have that, like you can be Lord in this area in my life, but, but my money no, no, you can't have that. My family, my dreams, like, no, no, that's not your territory. Like, stay in your little gate over here, God. And God's saying, no, I'm the king of the universe and I will be the king of you. And not only that, but he's everywhere in your life. He's there when you're sleeping. He's there when you're sinning. He's there when you're sharing the gospel. He's there when you're driving to work. He's there when you're sitting at work, which means that all of it has to do with him and is for him, and he won't have it any other way. You can't contain him. All right, so that's the temple. Is he saying you can't contain God in a temple? He's everywhere. The second accusation is the law. This is what they're accusing him of, that he rejects the law. And Stephen flips that one back on them, and he says, no, you guys are the ones who reject the law. Acts 7, 51 through 53. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels did not keep it. Stephen says, don't talk to me about the law. You guys are the ones who broke it. And not only that, but your forefathers that you're so proud of, they actually didn't keep the law either. And you set them up as kind of the pinnacle of what human beings should be. And then you put yourself next to them and say, hey, look, we're, we're okay. We're righteous because we come from this religious pedigree. That's how we've kept the law. And he's saying, no, no, no. You've broken it over and over again. Here is the story of the Old Testament. Here's the story of human history is that God is the faithful one to an unfaithful people. And that's not just true of them. That's true of us. Is that in our sin, in our false loves, in the things that we've pursued besides him, we are an unfaithful people. And I think that word is, is actually fitting. Think of unfaithfulness in a marriage. How do you come back from that if you're the one who cheated? You don't. Right? Like, like, how can you ever trust me again? What can I do to make this up to you? you? You can't. You can't make it up to him. But this is what God does is he's the spouse who refuses to leave. He says, even in your unfaithfulness, I'm going to choose to love you, not because of how you've loved me, but because of, of the overflow of my character. But here, here's what the Jewish people did, is, is they didn't find that very flattering. And so they, they rewrote their history to make themselves look a little bit better. And so they looked at these patriarchs and they said, yeah, no, these guys really did it. They really obeyed God. They really followed the law. But that wasn't the point. The, the point was that God was being faithful to them. God was the hero the whole time. For example, real quick, Abraham. So who was Abraham before God showed up to him? A nobody. 
Like Abraham was, was a pagan. He didn't know anything about worshiping God. He was probably worshiping in false temples, maybe where there was human sacrifice happening. Like Abraham didn't have a nice pedigree to bring to God. And what does God do? He shows up and he starts making promises because he's the promise making God. He says, Abraham, I'm going to love you. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to make a people out of you. I'm, I'm going to give you an inheritance. I'm going to give you something to live for. I'm, I'm going to give you an opportunity to live with me forever. He shows up and he starts making promises. And that's the same thing that he does for you. You were outside of the presence of God. I was outside of the presence of God with nothing to show for it. And God showed up and he started making promises. And he came to you and he said, you know what? I want to give you a new name. I want to bring you into my family. I want to make you righteous. I want to look at you like you're blameless. I want to invite you into my kingdom forever. He starts making promises. And here's the deal. The promises of God produced the obedience of Abraham, not the other way around. It wasn't that Abraham obeyed and then God made him promises as a result of his obedience. It's that God promised and then Abraham obeyed. And that's the same thing that happens for us. You don't obey to try and impress God and make him okay with you. You obey after you see the beauty of everything that he's done for you. And so here's what Stephen was saying. It was never about whether you could follow the rules. It was never about whether you could keep the law. Of course you couldn't. It was always about a redeemer. Someone who could keep the law in your place and then give you credit for it. But, but the religious leaders, for as much as they had studied the law, completely missed the point. And I'm afraid that that's some of us too. In a room this size... I guarantee you that there's people in here that you've been around Christianity for a long time and you, maybe you know a lot about it and you've completely missed the point. The entire time it's been about you and not about him. What you can do for him instead of what he did for you. And here's what's true of us as human beings is that we, like these leaders, we want to rewrite the story of our lives so that we become the hero. And everything in you, your flesh, and everything in our culture is telling you, hey, write this story about yourself. Make yourself look good. So you got you to gotta work for your name. You got to create a name for yourself. You got to write this story, this impressive life. And, and there's two ways you can go. You can either follow that pattern or you can look at the story of the Bible. You can look at the story of Jesus. You can look at the story of history and say, I am not the hero of this story. Jesus is the hero. And I want to I get rid of this story that I've been writing about myself. And I just want to enter into this story about him. And here's what's true, is if you're willing to do that, he can redeem you. He can do for you what you never could have done for yourself. Okay, so let's like step back. Let's summarize. Here was Stephen's points. God is everywhere and he's with his people. He's not confined to religious buildings or religious rituals. And God has sent us a redeemer who can keep the law for us even when we can't. So if we, if we kind of summarize those down into two big truths to pull out of this teaching, one, God is with us. And two, God is for us. He's with us and he's for us. So, I, so now I want to unpack the implications of those truths in your life. Okay, here's the first implication. You can die like Stephen. 
Jordan, I don't like that implication. Yeah, okay, that's fair, but, but stick with me. I, we're, ta- we're maybe talking physically, but, but I, I think there's a little bit more to that that I want to explain, all right? But let, let's look at this story. Stephen is about to give the ultimate sacrifice, the sacrifice of his life. Acts 7, 54 through 60. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. They held him in place, they picked up rocks, they threw them at him until he died. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. That is excellent writing on the part of Luke, by the way. That's foreshadowing of what's coming. 59. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Does that sound familiar? Who else said something like that? Jesus did as he died for us. And then verse 60. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So in an act of mob violence, masquerading as justice, they dragged him out of the city and they brutally murder him. But this is crazy. Notice the, the difference between these groups of people. This, this group of people stoning Stephen and then Stephen himself. The group of people, they're stomping their feet, they're closing their ears, they're, they're kind of gnashing their teeth. Shouldn't that have been Stephen? Like Stephen's calm. Shouldn't have he been the one freaking out in the crowd calm? So I, I think this is begging for the question. I think Luke wants us to ask this question. Is what enabled Stephen to die like that? How do you die so peacefully in the midst of injustice? Here's how. He knew that God was with him and that God was for him. So first, that God was, was with him in his suffering. So for those of you that, that don't know, I, I just had, uh, we just had our firstborn son uh, a few weeks ago. His name's Graham. Um, this, this past week, Graham was in the hospital. Okay, so he's, he's fine. Everything's good. Um, but he was in the hospital for a couple days. He just had a cold, but he had a little bit of a fever. And so it's, it's kind of scary when they're that young. And so he was in there for a couple days. And uh, I didn't want to go to the hospital for obvious reasons. It, it stinks for him. Also, I'm really trying to get him to like me more than he likes his mom, low-key. And, and it's not fair because she can feed him and I can't. And so, like, I, I have to, like, get other things. And so I didn't want to be associated with the hospital, but we had to go. And so it, it was no fun. And, you know, we get there. They're poking him. He's, he's getting mad and, and he's yelling and I'm trying to calm him down. And then, and then we go in and they've got to run all these tests, right? And so they have to put an IV in. And they actually had to, to get some, some spinal fluid to run a test, right? And so, like you parents, you, you know what this is like. I'm, I'm standing there holding down the arms of my newborn son as he, like, screams in pain. And here's the deal. From his perspective, all he knows is that this hurts and that it's the worst. And he wants out of it, Right? He, he, he can't comprehend why this is, this is happening to him. But here's what I knew. 
is that suffering, it wasn't arbitrary, it wasn't meaningless, it wasn't because I'm mean, it was actually for his good. That suffering could heal him. His suffering was not because I had abandoned him, it was because I love him and I wanted healing to come to him. Do you believe that about God? And we talk about suffering a lot at this church. I know that, but here's why. is because it exposes what you believe about God. Do you believe when life isn't what you expected it to be? Maybe it's not something like that, some, some like typical suffering that you think of, but when stuff feels meaningless, when it's just not going the way that you want, do you believe that God still loves you? What do you believe about him in that moment? And here's the deal. I didn't try and explain to Graham, hey, buddy, you know what? Like, this is why this is happening. It's like, it, it, we're going to get you healed up. And, and if we didn't do this, you might, you might actually like die or, or be sick for a while. And so, so we're going to try and heal you. I didn't explain that to him. Why? Because he had no possible way of understanding. And so what did I do? I held his arms down and I said, I love you. Dad's here. Are you willing to accept when life doesn't go the way that you want it to go that you might not actually have the capability to fully understand what's happening? See, so much of what we try and do is sort of figure out God and figure out suffering and figure out this world or figure out why there's suffering in the world in general, even if it's not happening to us, and to come up with kind of nice answers about why these things take place. But are you capable of dealing with the fact that maybe you don't have the perspective to fully understand and that God is there saying, I love you. I'm your dad. Trust me. See, here's the thing. The thing that can make suffering bearable is not the presence of answers, but the presence of God. That your dad's there with you in the middle of it. And the way we suffer demonstrates whether we believe that's true. And Stephen could suffer because he understood that God was with him. And look at what God did with that willingness. Look at this. This is amazing. Acts 8, 1 through 4. And there arose... On that day, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Okay, now what you have here, if you didn't know the end of the story, you would think that this is the end of Christianity. The death of the movement. Right, like one of the prominent leaders of the movement was just murdered and then there's these people that are going house to house and literally dragging people out in the streets and throwing them in prison. And then the people that can get out are running away from this persecution and you would think that this movement was over. But look at verse four. And now those who were scattered, which that seems like bad news, right? Right? Those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Okay, what was the church doing? It wasn't dying, it was expanding. In fact, this was the fulfillment of Jesus' last words on earth, Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Even through circumstances that nobody would have expected, Jesus wins. He will be faithful to his promise and nothing will stop him. Suffering, pain, sin, death, 
our culture that's against him. Nothing will stop Jesus. And he wants to use you, even if it's in ways that you didn't expect. And here's what happened. The suffering of one relatively normal man helped spark a movement that changed the course of history. Because that's the kind of stuff that Jesus does. Okay, now let me back up. What does this mean for us? I don't think there's any like martyrs in here. Okay, maybe, but I doubt it. More likely the death that will produce Jesus doing amazing things in this world is your death to self. Right? Like that's the call of Jesus. He says, come and die to sacrifice whatever would get in the way of you and other people knowing him. To die to your, to your selfish desires, to your dreams if they're not in accordance with his will to your own control over your own life, to, to step back from the story with you as hero and say, no, Jesus, you have my whole life, not just part of it. You can take the reins. And I want to die to that selfishness in me that wants to take control. Are you willing to walk through that death, that sacrifice to self, to see the glory of Jesus on the other side? Are you willing to trust him enough to believe that he could use something like that? And, and now look, in the past, I might have applied this differently. I might have said, look at Stephen, look at his, his willingness to sacrifice and, and how he wouldn't give up on his faith and kind of that, that willpower that got him to that point. But that's not really the point of the story is how amazing Stephen is. Stephen isn't the hero of the story. Jesus is. Stephen could sacrifice so much because he knew that Jesus was not only with him, but that he was for him. Flip back to Acts 7, 755 through 56. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Okay, notice here Jesus is standing. It's the only other time I can think about where we picture the throne room of heaven and Jesus is standing. Typically he's sitting, which communicates completion, like it is finished, it's over. So why is Jesus standing? Well, he doesn't totally explain, but this is what I think is happening. Jesus is standing because he's looking at his servant, Stephen, and he's saying, that's awesome. I'm on your side. He's, he's clapping for him. He's saying, Stephen, I love you. I'm with you, man. F.F. Bruce says it like this. I think this is good. Stephen has been confessing Christ before men, and now he sees Christ confessing his servant before God. See, even though he was found guilty on earth by this mob, he was found innocent in heaven. And, and, and that can get you the, the peace that you need, no matter what you have to suffer, no matter what you have to give up in this life, is that if you're in Christ, Jesus is standing in heaven saying your name, saying, hey, they're mine. I love you. I'm with you. I'm for you. And here's what that means is you can walk through life with peace that reflects the peace of Jesus. Let's end on this, Acts 760. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Okay, what? He fell asleep. He, he died, like Luke knows that, right? 
There's, like, there's a lot of ways you could describe death. Unnatural, like terrifying, painful, but fell asleep? What is sleeping? It's, it's, it's peaceful. It's, it's natural. It's, it's normal. That's how Jesus describes what death is like when you know him. Because here's why. When you die with Christ, Jesus actually brings life. Apparent death actually brings life. Here's how metaphorically, when you die to yourself, Jesus will actually bring life out of that death. Like, don't sacrifice things in your life for Jesus because you feel bad about it. Sacrifice because it's a better life. Yeah, you have to give up some of that selfishness, but you get Jesus, the king of the universe, who stands in the throne room and calls your name. Isn't that better? That's a way better life. And then physically, out of death, he can bring life. One day, you will close your eyes on this earth and you will open them in heaven which makes anything you go through in this life or anything that you give up unbelievably worth it. Jesus is standing in the throne room of God speaking your name, which means that in any and every circumstance, you can have peace. Let me pray. Thanks for that truth, Jesus. Thanks that you could have stood in heaven and like turned your back on us. You... you, you could have left us in our sin, and you didn't. You gave us the opportunity to trust you, to believe in you, and then to receive peace that transcends all understanding. That's awesome. And thanks for your servant, Stephen. Thanks for his willingness to die. And I pray that we could be like him not only willing to die to the, the old selfish desires that we have, but willing to do it with peace, trusting that, that you want what's good for us, that you're not only with us, but you're for us, and so that anything we give up is, is better, not worse. But that's really hard for us to believe. I don't believe that. I haven't believed that even all of today. And so help us by your spirit. Help us to be people that are like that, Jesus. And thanks that... Um, yeah, it's not dependent on us that you've promised us so much and given us so much and we just respond. That's awesome. We love you. Amen.